0: Now, shame is a huge part of our society these days, isn't it? You know, I know we, we, we live in uh, Britain. We tend to think of ourselves as more of a guilt culture. We think of ourselves as people who are more concerned with what is right and what is wrong rather than what is shameful or honorable. But actually, I think there's... Well, first of all, I think British people tend to underestimate just how shame-based our culture is. Um, for example, you know, when we tell our children off, or when we, when, when we see something wrong, you know, our, our first response often isn't, oh, that's wrong. Our first response is, oh, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. Or, you know, we go to the barber or the, the hairdressers. And, you know, right at the end, when they hold up that mirror behind you, And you know there's a massive kink there that they've not spotted. And yet you could not possibly bring yourself to say, do you mind just sorting that out? You end up paying him anyways, or her anyways, going to find another barber or another hairdresser to sort it out. And you end up paying double for a terrible haircut. Shame is a massive part of our society. And all of us feel it. And actually, you know, I, I'm no different to you. I'm no different to anybody else. Yeah, you know, I, I remember at school, you know, I'd just completely forgotten that it was non-uniform day. So, like an idiot, i went up to school in sort of full blazer, trousers, everything. Um, and all my friends, you know, like, for, for those of you who don't know, British schools, non-uniform days was a big thing. Like, it, it's your one chance in... Um, possibly an entire year where you can show off to your friends just how much, how, how fashion conscious you might be. And so everybody paraded in in their fineries and there was me with my um, stupid school uniform. Or, you know, you just landed a really major deal and your solicitor has taken you out for a meal um, with your clients and you're at this crazy posh restaurant. You're faced with more cutlery than any human being could possibly ever need. And you hold up this one thing that looks remarkably like a spatula, and you have no idea what it's supposed to do. Um, and, you know, it's later on when you when the the, the waiters are clearing your plates so that you realize that actually, you know, I think it's supposed to be for the fish course. And you know that sort of the waiter had just been smiling smugly um, because he knows that you've missed something out. or well, maybe even, you know, you you're, you come from a different background to other people. Um, you bring in some food um, and you microwave it in the company microwave. And you forget just how pungent fish sauce is once it's been microwaved. And the entire office has stunk out. Because of what because of your lunch, you know those are deeply shameful things aren 't they and you know i 'm sure most of you guys would be able to um, yeah have some sympathy with me on that one, I think, but the thing is as powerful as that shame is when it comes to us relating to other people. Shame is even a bigger factor when it comes to our interaction with God. I mean, I wonder how often have we been unable to bring ourselves to do a quiet time because we're just so ashamed of shouting at our kids in an ungodly way or um, speaking to our wives or husbands in an ungodly way. Or, you know, committed some sin that was just so ashamed of that we can't possibly bring ourselves into the light of God. But thankfully, God is gracious and he has given us ways by which our shit could be dealt with. Now we're going to see three things today um, from the passages that we've just read. Now, you you may be already thinking, you know, we we just read the water into wine thing. You know, what's it got to do with shame? Well, you know, don't worry, we'll get there. But we're going to see three things about this passage today. Firstly, is that Jesus provides a brand new way to deal with shame. Secondly, that Jesus provides a better way to deal with shame. And thirdly, that Jesus, uh, you know, we're going to see how this shame is actually dealt with um, by the work of Jesus. So, firstly, then Jesus provides a brand new way to deal with shame. You know that, that the thing is there, there are actually quite a few little hints throughout this passage that tells us that John is deliberately telling us that Jesus is heralding in something new, a brand new creation, if you will. So just even when we kick off this little uh, narrative bit, when he says, on the third day, there was a wedding. Now, if, you, if you're if careful about how you've read the previous chapters, what you come to realize is that this third day is actually the seventh day of when the narrative kicks off. And that echoes... The creation story, and especially when you look at the beginning of John 1, where it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. You're Already we are being flagged up that Jesus is going to be giving us something new and exciting. Now, the second thing we see is the fact that Jesus turns the water into wine in, from, from these stone jars that were used from Jewish rites of purification. You know, the idea of transforming an, an old thing into a new thing. You know, clearly here, John wants to show us something of the newness of what Jesus brings with him. And the second thing we see is that Jesus provides a better way to deal with shame. You now, that's really clear, isn't it, by the fact that the wine that is brought out to the master of the ceremony is actually better than anything that the party had already tasted. It is a much, much better way of dealing with shame. Is much, much better thing than before. And, you know, the, the, the idea of wine being something that brings in something new and better from God is, is something that is dotted all over Scripture. You know, Deuteronomy talks about it. Um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, they both talk about it. But nowhere is it clearer than in Joel, where in chapter 2, verse 19 to 27, if you can turn with me to there, please. The Joel Chapter Two, which is on page seven six, we'll get there eventually. Seven six one, and verses nineteen to twenty seven. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerners far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rearguard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things." Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The trees bear fruit. The fig tree and vine gives a full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you, for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floor shall be full of grain, and the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten, the hopper and the destroyer and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. And you will eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. So clearly this idea of um, God providing wine for his people is intimately connected to the idea of vindicating his people or removing their shame. And, you know, we, we see, don't we, that this is actually an, an abundant provision. You know, there, there are these big, six big stone jars. Presumably they can't be moved because um, water has to be put into them and wine, well, water was drawn out, which then was turned into wine. And we're told here that the six of them, each one holds 20 to 30 gallons, which, you know, is about 180 gallons. Now, you know, that, that's basically meaningless, I think, for most of us. And so just to put it into a bit of perspective, it works out to be about a 1,000 bottles of wine. That's a lot of wine. And it's an absolute. So we see that it's an uh, it's an abundant provision uh, from the Lord. But the third thing we see is how Jesus actually deals with the wine. Now, you know, if you've been counting down the time and you're thinking, "Wow, you know, he just kind of busts right through two points." You know, this sermon will be over by eleven forty-five. Well. Hold on to your seats. We've got a bit longer to go yet, because this is by far the biggest point. That Jesus is able to deal with the shame. Now, we see, don't we, that Jesus very specifically asks for these six stone jars that are used for ceremonial cleaning to be filled with water. And that's the water that he then uses to turn into wine. And actually, for most of us, we look at these the ceremonial rite and we think, you know, what, what is that about? You know, what's the point? I mean, you know, never mind not caring about being ceremonial clean, whatever that might have meant for us, for for them. Um, you know, quite a few of us actually don't even care about being hygienically clean. You know, that's why when we have church lunch, we're forced to have alcohol rub right at the beginning of the um, conveyor belts. And actually, if you've got kids, you know there's no way of keeping everything clean. So what is this ceremonial cleanliness about? Well, you know, when you read through the Old Testament, it's really clear that it's attached to things that are considered to be socially inappropriate. You know, things like um, eating animals that you shouldn't eat. Now, as a Chinese person, you know, I experience this frequently when people will ask me, "Oh, you know, what's the most disgusting thing you've ever eaten?" Well, I don't eat disgusting things. They might be disgusting to you, um, but actually, it's delicious to me. Um, but the point is, socially. Eating things like dog, cat, bats, rodents in Um, general—you know—they're just unacceptable. And actually, when people hear about it, when people think about it, you know, it kind of disgusts them, and actually makes you a little bit disgusting to them as well. And it's great that, sort of, as a society, we've come far enough for that not to be too big an issue. But still, you know, you still see people absolutely appalled by the idea that I would quite happily eat a dog. I can see that in some of you even now. You know, that, that, that clean, cleanness then is all about what is socially acceptable and what is socially appropriate rather than what is necessarily moral. Now, whatever is moral is necessarily socially inappropriate. Whatever is immoral, sorry. Is is necessarily socially inappropriate, but the over sort of the overwhelming emphasis when it comes to shame is one of social relationship rather than what is strictly right or wrong, and that's why actually it's such a powerful emotion. Um, But the thing is, God God in the Old Testament gave people ways to deal with it. You know, go and clean yourself. Do these things for a day. You know, in the evening you will be clean again so that you can come to him and you can see God again. Um, and actually I think our society has missed out on some of this stuff. We we don't have purification rights, which means that we have no real way of knowing how to navigate social shame. So, you know, when I stunk out the office, for example, yeah. I I had no idea how I could get back into people's good books again. I just had no way of doing it. Um, And imagine if that was applied to our relationship with God. If we've done something wrong, we're shamed before him, and yet we're not given any way to go back to him. Can you imagine how terrible that would be for us? But God, in the Old Testament, did give people ways to get back to him, to restore their honor before him. And here we see Jesus give an even better way. You know, water into wine. I mean, wine is better than water, right? Even just on a purely material level. And but what we see is actually this sign points to something even greater than just washing by water. In fact, this sign points to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, you know, some of you probably looked at this and went, huh, I wonder where he got that from. Well, let's have a look. So again, I want you to focus again on that first verse. On the third day. On the third day, this is what happened. So, actually, John only wanted to sort of tell us a little bit that, oh, you know, this is something new. If he wanted to focus on that, he could have just said, and on the seventh day. And yet, what he chooses here is, he says, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the thing is, straight after this little bit, we have the scene of Jesus cleansing the temple from verses 13 to 22. And so what happened was Jesus went to the temple. He saw that there was just mass abuse of the system there. And he clears the entire temple. And then people asked for a sign to prove, for Jesus to prove that he is able to tell people what the true way of worshipping God is rather than leaving them to the false ways of worshipping God. And this is what he says in verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And then the the Jews then replied, it had taken 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. And so when, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So even right at, the, right at the beginning of the chapter, John just plants this little idea that what's to come, this sign of water into, turning water into wine, is pointing to the end of the book where Jesus dies and is resurrected. And that somehow deals with our shame. Now, the second little clue that we get here is the fact that when Jesus is replying to Mary, he says, my hour is not yet come. Now, prior to this, we, we, we have nothing on what the hour is. We, we've not seen anything. But yet, as we go through the rest of John's gospel, what we see is over and over again, when Jesus refers to the hour, the hour, the hour that is coming, the hour that is here, He is talking about His death and resurrection. It's the, the entire drive of the book is towards that last scene where Jesus dies. But what I find, well, one of the most compelling things that I find about this idea that here is talking about the sign is pointing to Jesus' death and resurrection is the fact that He calls Mary, woman, in this um, in in this little exchange. Now, you know, Protestants and Catholics fight over this a lot. You know, is Jesus rebuking Mary? Um, You know, so for, for Protestants, we would say yes, possibly. It certainly sounds like he's rebuking Mary. But for many Catholics, they'll say, oh, no, 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 you, you've misunderstood what Jesus is doing there. You know, the, the term woman there could be affectionate. Um, you know, he, he's re, you know it's really an endearing thing. And, you know, look, he actually does what he, she says. But actually, and, you know, I, I think there are really interesting debates to be had about exactly what's going on there in terms of the relationship between Mary and Jesus. But what is far more interesting, I find, is that Jesus only calls Mary woman twice, ever. The first time is here, and the second time was in John 19. I don't know if you noticed it when I was reading it, but I deliberately paused over when Jesus was saying, well, effectively saying to Mary, John, or or, the the, the disciple, the beloved disciple, he was asking him to look after her. So in verse 27 in John 19, on page 905, if you want to turn there with me. Then he said to the disciple, oh, sorry, um, before that, um, verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. You know, here John uses this one, and, and you know, we know it's a jarring phrase because every time we read it, we kind of go, "Whoa!" You know, is Jesus telling off his, his mom? You know, what, what's going on here? Like, it's a really jarring phrase that just flags up. This is a special thing that then points us to something at the end of the book, but. One question still remains. Okay, we've seen that Jesus is sort of giving us a new way of dealing with shame. Fair enough. We've seen that Jesus offers a better way to deal with shame. Okay. We've seen how actually Jesus is, even here, is pointing to his death and resurrection right at the end to deal with our shame. But how is that even possible? How can what somebody else do ever deal with our shame? Our, our, our whole lives, we live, we work, we, we, we have fun. Nobody has ever been able to affect our status before other people one way or other or another. You know, our status is almost entirely something that we own, that we have to earn ourselves before other people. You know, how do we gain honor in front of people? How do we remove shame? Well, we do it by doing good to them or being bad to them, depending on how we're going. And yet here we're being told that Jesus provides a way to deal with our shame Before God. How is that possible? Well, from the rest of scripture, we know that as Jesus lived an absolutely perfect life, in fact, you know, as you read through the Gospel of John and you read all the other Gospels, one of the conclusions that you necessarily come to is that Jesus has lived a perfect life. He never sinned. And we read, didn't we, earlier from John 19 when Pilate went back and questioned Jesus each step of the way. And every time, you know, Pilate kept saying, I find no fault in this man. There is nothing wrong with what Jesus was saying, what Jesus had ever done, and yet people sought to crucify him. So Jesus was a totally innocent person, and he did everything that was good. And then what we see was that he was crucified on the cross. Now, the Bible tells us that this then satisfied God, his wrath against sin, and actually then, obviously then, removes our shame. But actually, that's really bizarre. If Jesus was just a man, if Jesus was yet another person, how could his death possibly pay for my sins, let alone the sins of everybody else who believes in him? That's, that's bizarre, isn't it? It just doesn't add up. But thankfully, in this sign, what we see is that Jesus is divine. He is God Himself, and this is this is an amazing mystery, isn't it? Now, you know, as we were going through, and you kind of look at the signs, and you think, "Oh, you know, water into wine, biggie, no big deal." You know, we've we, we read this, we've read about this before. It's really easy to miss the fact that actually this sign not only does it show us the works of Jesus, it actually shows us something about who he is. The fact that he could turn water into wine shows us that he is divine, that he is God himself. Now, you know, humanly speaking, you know, we can make wine. That, that's not hard. I mean, it takes a bit of time, but it's not hard. But for Jesus, what we see is he takes water, chemically speaking, basically the simplest thing you can have, and turns it into wine, which we know, and you know, not just wine, good wine, which we know is one of the chemically complex mixture of, of, of anything that we can find. You know, good wine has Lots and lots of different compounds all going for it at the same time and that's why the flavor of good wine is so complex. You know, clearly here, Jesus isn't just sort of, you know, taking hydrogen and water and then rearranging it somehow to make wine, which is what we do when we take grape and we, you know, As far as I know, people kind of tread on it a little bit. The bacterias get into it, and then they ferment, and out comes wine. No, no. What Jesus is doing here, he's actually, you know, he's taken some water, yes, but actually he's created something brand new from it. He's There's something brand new about it. That is something that no human being has ever been able to do. Now, if Jesus is divine... It means that as he dies on the cross, he's the one who's forgiving us. And he's the one whose death covers our sins. And because he is divine, his worth is such that it's enough to pay for all of our sins. Because we're only human beings. And we should praise God for that. Now, that's all well and good, but what does it mean for us? Well, if you're not a Christian here today, I wonder, how do you deal with shame? You know, as you come and you think about who God is and what He is like, do you really feel able to stand before Him and justify all your actions? Or are you actually ashamed? Of all the things that you've done. Well the answer is quite clear isn't it? If that's how you feel. That you can come to God. If you believe in the Lord Jesus. Because as you are united with him. By faith. As you believe in him. You become part of his body. And so when God sees you. He doesn't see just your sins. He sees your sins washed away. And he sees a clean person with Jesus and all that he has done. And we, we, we have actually seen this over and over again in the lives of Christians. You know, there's this one guy, Av- I know, he's still alive, so yeah, I know. Um, he spent, I mean, he, he grew up in a Christian home. He, his his mum and dad were, well, his, his dad was an elder of a church. His mum was really involved. Um, and sort of in his teenage years, he kind of thought, oh, you know, I might be a Christian. But then very quickly, he discovered drugs, sex, and alcohol, and rock and roll, as it happens. And from there, his life just took a massive tumble um, until we met when he was in his 40s and I was in my mid-20s. Um, and as we read the Bible together, one of the things that he kept saying was, God doesn't know what I've done. You know, there's no way he could possibly, possibly forgive me. And he didn't really know what he was you know, really saying was that he was too ashamed to come to God. And yet, as we read the scripture together, as we talked about these things, one of the things that just kept coming up was, well, actually, every time this happened, he felt lighter somehow. And he felt one day, finally, that he was able to come to God. And to this day, I praise God for being able to be part of that process, to see him finally able to let go of all that shame and all that baggage that he'd been carrying around for years. And now... I mean, you know, he's not proud of what he's done. But he's able to share all that God has done in his life, including what kinds of sins he's been released from. And he's able to tell that to people now. And it's not just sat inside eating away at him. But what does this mean for us as Christians then? Well, you know, I said earlier that actually sometimes... It's possible for us to get so eaten up with our sins that we don't feel like we're able to come to God. But to do that is to deny the works of Jesus. Jesus has removed our shame. And so actually when we sin far from turning our backs on God, far from you know trying to hide from him the way Adam and Eve did, actually what we should do is to run towards him, to beg for forgiveness, and that he has promised to do so because of what Jesus has done. And we can trust in that, and then we can pray that his Holy Spirit will be working in our lives so that we can be made new. And less sinful each and every day. But what does this mean for us as a church? Now, it's so easy, isn't it, when you come to church. You, you, you put on your nice clothes. You put on um, your nice shoes. And you smile at everyone. And you think, well, actually, everything's just fine, isn't it? And But it's not. We know it's not. We struggle with sin. We struggle with life. And we're just too ashamed to admit it. Because everybody else looks fine. And so we come to church on a Sunday and we go through the motions. We sing the psalms. We sing the songs. We pray to God. And yet none of it touches us. Because inwardly, We are trying to hide from God. But we know that Jesus has dealt with those shames. And so as a church, perhaps it would be good to acknowledge the fact that actually we are not okay. To know and to be more open with one another. And I know it's hard. It is so difficult. Like I said before, shame is a very powerful emotion. And the thing is, we can't possibly expose our shame in to other people unless we feel that we can trust them. So maybe as a church, what we need to do is to foster more and more this feeling of trust for one another, that when things are exposed that we would deal with it appropriately, but graciously and lovingly. And you know, the thing is, I've not been here very long. I, it's not that I'm, I've spotted that, you know, th- th- this is a particular problem in the church. Not, no, not at all. You know, this has come naturally from, you know, thinking about shame and the way church in general is. And it could well be that actually, for a lot of people, they feel able to share and they feel able to, um, sort of be accountable to other people, and that'd be amazing, that's great. But if that's not you, you can I encourage you to think about both being more accepting of other people, knowing that Jesus is the one who deals with their shame, but also being more open yourself to the idea of sharing um, the things that you're struggling with. And so, you know, let's just end with this. Right at the end, in verse 11, this is the first of his signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested in his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, all that I've talked about really is just an outworking of believing in Jesus. So actually, this is the one thing that we have to come back to each and every time, that we know that he has provided a new way to deal with our shame. It's a better way to deal with our shame. And because he is God and he has died on the cross to pay for our sins, we can come before him and we can worship God with a clear conscience. Let's pray.